Hey Thrivers, you're listening to the Thrive Student Ministry Podcast. Thrive is an MBSF college ministry on the campus of the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. At Thrive, we empower students to engage in their relationship with God through mentorship, friendship, and the discovery of their purpose. For more information on our gathering times, including our events, small groups, and weekly worship, visit us at thriveuark.com or follow us on our social medias at thriveuark. This week, Dom is going to be continuing our series, My Servant Job. Add it up. We're jumping back into the series that we kicked off uh, just a couple weeks ago. And through it, we're kind of looking at the book of Job. And so um, two weeks ago, we kind of jumped into just kind of talking about who Job is. Uh, And we talked about Job's righteousness and even some of the dialogue and some of the other characters uh, that we that we see in that first chapter of Job between Satan and God and Job, how he responds to his suffering, suffering, who in a moment and almost inexplicably loses everything he has. And so um, what we know is that Satan comes to God and he accuses God and he accuses Job of being frauds. He says, Job doesn't love you for you. He doesn't love God for God. He loves you for the things he gets from you. And likewise, he says that Job has just learned how to play the game well. He doesn't actually love you. He's just trying to get the good stuff. Um, And God, what we know about what God says in this dialogue is he affirms the righteousness that we're told Job has. Um, He says that Job is blameless. Job is righteous in his eyes. And so any deviation from that, we know from here on out is not only an indictment on Job, but it's also an indictment thereby on God and what he has said about Job. So God allows the suffering to happen uh, to Job for two purposes. And we kind of even talked about uh, both of those is that God allows it so that Job might ultimately in the end be brought closer to himself. Um, Because what we know is that Job does love God, but what we're gonna find out even a little bit this week, and then as we wrap it up next week, is that Job doesn't really truly love God for God yet. Uh, And the second thing that he he allows us, the reason he allows this to happen to Job, um, is he allows this um, because he wants Satan to accomplish the very opposite thing that Satan is hoping to accomplish. And so, Job goes through this suffering and his response after losing all that he has, his family, um, all his his earthly possessions, health and wealth, is he falls on his knees and says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's an amazing response. It's a great uh, picture for us to take. But what we know from that in chapter one, where we wrapped up, is that Job, team Job, team God, they win round one. And so what we're going to do is we're going to lay the groundwork a little bit for where we're going and we'll land the plane kind of uh, and camp out in Job 4. But just to recap a little bit of where we're going uh, in Job 2, a similar thing happens is um, Satan comes back to the heavenly court. And what he says to God again is that (laughs) Job (laughs) doesn't love you for you. Uh, God, he still loves you for the things that he gets from you. And he contends with God this time uh, because he doesn't have his possessions or his family anymore. He contends that now if you will harm him physically, right, if you will hurt him physically, um, that that will be the thing that causes Job to curse God. Uh, and so God allows it again. But what we have to remember is that God is still in control. And he says that you are not to take his life. Uh, and so Satan brings the suffering on him. And Job does not curse God. Uh, In fact, he responds similarly 
to uh, how he responds in the first chapter, uh, even in spite of his wife coming to him uh, and questioning why he holds fast to his integrity. Job pretty much rebukes her and is faithful and standing uh, in his relationship. He stays in that relationship with God. And so there again, we see that round two also goes to team Job and team God. And so we're going to camp out there in just a second. You guys want to open up to Job 2 um, verses 11 through 13. Um, we're introduced to the next batch of people in this story who are very important. Uh, and we're entering this chunk of Job, which is a poetic dialogue uh, between Job and his friends and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who are introduced to here now. Um, but what, it's, what you guys need to know about what's happening here is that Job's suffering is, does not end after the occurrences of losing his health and wealth, his family, and even his own his health and his being in Job 1 and 2. But rather, what happens is the battleground and the arena by which his suffering continues shifts. And so the arena of his suffering now shifts into his heart and into his mind. And so that's very interesting for us to know is because what we're going to see throughout this next 30 some odd chapter dialogue um, between his friends. And this is a conversation, you know, right? This isn't like the debates where there's constant interrupting, constant disrespect. Now, there is some hostility, but um, through this poetic dialogue, we can really pull, pull out what is being said here. How do they view God? We're ultimately going to see how Job views God, how Job views his suffering, how his friends also see his suffering. And so there are three distinguishing things that I want us to pay attention to over the next couple of weeks about what this book and what we're going to learn about um, this book through this dialogue. And so the first thing is answering the question of why. And so that's something that Job kind of wants, at least at first and through this first section, he wants an explanation, right? He wants to know, why is this happening to me? Right? And that's even what his friends are trying to convey to him. They're going to say, this is why. They're going to try to answer that question for him, right? But in and through that also, the next thing that Job needs to, is going to realize and what we learn from this story is that Job holds fast to his, his, his integrity, up until the very end, he's, he's going to hold fast to the fact that I am righteous. I, I, I have not sinned. I have not cursed God, right? And in doing so, not only does he have to convince himself that God also views himself this way, but he has to defend himself to his friends. Thereby, what he's also doing is looking for vindication. And so the last thing, and this is really why we get into this idea of um, Job being kind of a manual for how we walk with God through pain and suffering is we're going to find out how can Job bear this? How can Job continue to put himself through this? How is he going to make it through this? Right. And so that's kind of where we're going to um, settle on for tonight. And we're going to break that up into three kind of different sections. But first, we need to answer this question of how. Um, how is he going to bear this? And I would submit to you the, the thing that I pull out of this is the idea that the way he um, endures the suffering, the way that we oftentimes endure suffering is through comfort, right? And we can get that comfort from all different sorts of ways, whether it's a thing or whether it's a person or a community. Um, but this idea of comfort that doesn't completely alleviate the pain or the suffering that we're going through, I think of it, the best illustration I can think of is like a batting glove, so like I played high school baseball, we always had batting gloves. I always got white batting gloves, even though I was gonna slide and get them all orange and brown and dirty like the dirt. Um, but I wanted white batting gloves. 
And so the reason you wear batting gloves and the reason why, at least in high school, when you have the BB core aluminum bats, um, you have like the rubber handles and stuff like that, is so when you hit the ball, the shock that shoots down the bat isn't so strong, right? And so it doesn't completely alleviate, it take away all of the pain um, that comes by hitting the ball, but it, it does soften it, right? And so that's the, this idea of comfort, right? And we're gonna split it up into three categories, the, the bad comfort, that Job gets and what we're gonna see is while Job's friends come into the situation with a good intention originally, what they really offer Job is bad comfort, bad counsel. And the, the second thing that we're gonna see is that Job has to counsel himself. And so I would submit that anytime you're any, going through any sort of pain and suffering, it will and always will require some sort of and some level of self-counsel, self-comfort. Right? You, we always have to be evaluating ourselves and trying to encourage ourselves. We're the ones who ultimately have to um, get up and decide to do something about, uh, decide to heal about it. We have to take some of that, those first steps. And so Job has to comfort himself. And it's sad because the comfort that Job offers himself ultimately ends up being more comforting than the comfort that his friends offer him. And then the ultimate comfort, the best comfort that we can have, we can have comes from something else, but we'll dive into that later. And so I'm gonna read from Job chapter two, uh, verse, starting in verse 11. It says, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their friends were Eliphaz from Temanite, Bildad from Shuhite, and Zophar from Mahite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw, threw dust into, their, into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw the suffering was too great for words. And so here we're introduced to these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And we can see from the beginning, like, they really do, it looks like, it seem, seemingly, they come to it, to it initially with a good heart. And I don't know if they have any predispositions or assumptions about it uh, while they're going uh, to see him, but what's clear is that they communicated about, about this beforehand, right? And they all come, and it says they come to comfort Job. And so what kind of comfort are they gonna offer? At least initially what we see is, similarly to how Job suffers, or deals with his grief initially, they tear their robes as a sign uh, that they're sharing in sympathy to this grief that Job is, is feeling. And then they also, this idea of completeness, completeness that we kind of talked about a couple weeks ago where they stay for a complete time of mourning, seven days, seven nights in silence, right? And so you can see that they're there um, and they're there truly at first, at least to comfort Job in a good way. But while their original intentions are good, uh, but we will see that eventually, seemingly their comfort is not right. It is a misunderstanding, not only the situation that Job is in, but also a misunderstanding of God and who God is. They have some predispositions about how God operates in the world. That's kind of the other thing, the other purpose that we kind of talked about when we opened this series. This is the idea that this series is gonna give us a glance into how um, some of the ways by which God governs the world. Uh, but it's so bad that even in Job 16, verse two, at least Job to say, what miserable comforters you are, right? And so it goes from being close friends who are mourning with him to Job says, you know, you're horrible. You're horrible at comforting me. And so before we land the plane uh, and kick off in four, what we need to kind of go after is what, what's happening in Job 3. And in Job 3, what happens is Job breaks the silence. 
And Job breaks the silence and is saying all these, you know, what we, we read, and especially when I read Job the first time, I was like, he's saying such harsh things about God. Right? Is this not him sinning against God? Is this not him doing exactly what Satan wants him to? He's lamenting, you know, the day of his birth, right? Even the day of his conception. He's saying, I wish I was never born. We're going to find out why he says that. But I would say that what he says and how he says it is not sin. This is not accomplishing what Satan wants. And there's a reason for that. At that time, the way that you would address royalty, a king, you wouldn't address them directly. I wouldn't say, hey, Jack, can I, can I, have, can I come into your court and talk to you? Um, I would refer to him as the king. Will the king see me? Right? So you always refer to them in, I guess, the third person. Right? And so through this, what we're seeing is as much as we know and think that this is a dialogue between Job and his friends, this is also very much so a dialogue between Job and God. And what we're going to see at the very end of Job, as we're going next week, is that God responds to Job. But through this, oftentimes when Job opens his mouth, he's not actually talking to his friends, but he's rather talking to God. And the thing that you need to realize about that is God can handle um, what, what, what he, you're feeling, what you're going through. You know, Job isn't telling God anything that God doesn't already know about what Job is feeling. But what is important to notice is that Job is praying. He constantly is praying about how he's feeling, about what he's going through, about the suffering that he's enduring. And the thing that we do, we don't get, and the thing, the evidence that we don't have is that his friends also prayed about the situation. We get no evidence that his friends did likewise and prayed uh, in the same way. But it's something that brings us to a good point of evaluation for ourselves. Is this something that you do? Right? I loved how we opened up tonight. We haven't done that all year, honestly, just kind of because of the social distancing and some of those different things, just kind of be skittish about it. But the idea that we opened in prayer, right? And we joined together and we, we're either sitting with one another or get on your knees and get next to somebody and you join with them in prayer. It's so important for us to pray. And so my question is, how much do you, right? Because I think in a day and age where we have, <laughs> we have our phones out so much and our phones tell us exactly how much time we spent on them every day, every week. Actually, right before church, I get mine that says, you spent X hours on your phone this week every day. Hours, not minutes, hours, right? And in relation to it, I just, I can't help but think, how many hours do you spend on your phone? And how many hours do you spend in prayer talking to the God who has invited you into relationship with him, right? You say you have a relationship with him, but do you pray with him? Like we just prayed for, I think a total of, you know, three 45 sec second um, bursts. How much more than that do you pray every day, right? And in terms of grief, we see that like, we don't get any ev in evidence that his friends and him pray together, right? And I think that's probably the biggest pet peeve of mine when you know, I see someone going through suffering or I'm suffering or I'm going through something hard and someone's just like, I'll pray for you. All right, cool. But let me ask you this, is prayer a platitude or is prayer a practice? Because prayer can be, if you're not careful, it can be the same platitude as if someone were to die and you say, I'm praying for you. It could be the same as, oh, God has a miraculous plan for you and this was just within God's will. And while those things aren't false, they don't actually help that person. You're not actually offering that person any sort of comfort. And so the thing that I, I oftentimes love to do instead of that is actually pull them aside and say, hey, can I pray with you right here? 
right? And so, again, is prayer a practice or a platitude, right? And so it kind of goes in line with, you know, this idea with our phones is like, we have this modern era of insufferability. We have low capacities for any sort of pain or suffering or opposition. And it goes to the idea of, yeah, we're addicted to our phones and not to the idea of prayer, right? And I even think about um, Jesus praying in Gethsemane in Matthew 20, 26, where Jesus fully knows and understands the suffering that he's going to go through, right? On the cross, he knows. And his response is to pray. And he prays and he spends time with his father. He brings his friends too. But what happens to his friends? They fall asleep, right? I think that's us so much of the time when we're talking about comforting one of another. And so that's kind of what happens in Job 3 is he's, he's saying this very harsh, but very real and authentic prayer. He's praying to God. And so Eliphaz is going to respond in Job chapter 4, and we're going to kick off in verse 1. It says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied to Job, Will you be patient and let me say a word? For who could keep from speaking? In the past you have encouraged many people. You have strengthened those who are weak. Your words have supported those who are falling. Fail, yeah, falling. You encourage those with shaking knees. But now when trouble strikes you, you lose heart. You are terrified when it touches you. Doesn't your reverence for God give you confidence? Doesn't your life of integrity give you hope? Stop and think. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. A breath from God destroys them. They vanquish in, blast, in the blast of his anger. The lion roars and the wildcat snarls, but the teeth of the strong lions will be broken. The fierce lions, lion will starve for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness will be scattered. Um, and that's where we're going to stop for now. But this idea that Job uh, speaks, and then Eliphaz, it's almost like he's been pent up waiting for that seven days and, you know, waiting for Job to speak, and he pipes up real quick after Job prays. Uh, and he says, he says, he says uh, will you be patient and let me say a word? Almost as, to, it, almost as if he were to say, like, will you be upset if, I'm gonna, if I say something to you? Very quickly following up with, I don't really care if you get upset. I'm going to say this to you. I'm going to say this, right? And then he proceeds to offer Job probably in my mind, at least to this point, the biggest backhand compliment he could ever give. He said in the past that you've strengthened and encouraged many people, um, but now when trouble strikes, you lose heart. And this idea that he's saying, um, in the past when you had things, when you had all these riches, you encouraged people, you had the strength to, to give people wise counsel, to comfort them. But now when evil is befallen on you, you've become a hypocrite. You can't even take the advice that you've dished out to people in the past. Uh, it goes on in verse six, he says, doesn't your reverence for God give you confidence? Doesn't your life of integrity give you hope? And here, what we're seeing is Eliphaz assumes and is laying the groundwork for what the rest of his argument and the, what the rest of his friends um, are going to jump in with Eliphaz and argue in regards to Job. But he assumes that Job's grief and harshness of God through his prayer is evidence of his guiltiness and his lack of faith. Um, Eliphaz is laying the groundwork for the assumption that the affliction is, called, uh, is caused by divine retribution. In other words, what, what, what Eliphaz is saying is that this is 
divine judgment placed upon you for your sins. Right? So he's assuming that Job has sinned in some way and that they just don't know about it yet. So ultimately what he's aiming is that he wants Job to confess to his sin and repent of it. And so what's happening here? And we're, now we're going to see this great divide between these two thinkings and how both of these parties view God. Right? Um, what what they, these friends are assuming is that they can assume and determine Job's character based off Job's circumstance. And what we know is that that's totally false and, and wrong thinking about how God operates and how God treats us. It's, an, it's ignorance of the idea of grace, which we kind of unpack that Job fully does, at least in part, understand um, about who God is. And they assume that uh, using a very simple line of logical thinking that God brings suffering and divine retribution against sinners. And since Job is suffering, therefore he has to be a sinner and he has to be wicked. And that's their assumption uh, because they, they've seen um, the circumstance by which Job is going through. And so they're assuming that that is the end all be all, be all definition of Job's character. Uh, and so what we're gonna see is that this is a kind of the disposition that at least this party in this conversation has and that uh, Job's friends feel that they have to defend God through this entire dialogue. And as a result, that pits them against Job and so they thereby make Job and condemn Job as the enemy. But the big issue here is that this is an oversimplified uh, understanding of who God is. Um, and they clearly don't understand uh, how God operates, and quite frankly, neither, do Job, neither does Job yet. Job and his friends are operating based on the assumption that they can understand God. And I think that that is partly just a super big problem with worldviews and Christianity even today, right? When people are going through suffering now, if you're a Christian and you believe uh, in God and in Jesus Christ, what you say when suffering hits is that um, this is a, just a spiritual problem. Right? You're not praying enough or like, have you, when was the last time you opened your Bible? And some of those things are, are, very, are true in the fact that for us to flourish in our relationship with God, we do need to be spending time in prayer. We do need to open our Bibles. We do need to be around fellow believers. But it is also not the reason why or why not we go through suffering. On the flip side of the coin, the secular worldview would submit that everything, when bad things happen, is always a psychological or biochemical issue. I know for me, um, it was this. Uh, I, I kind of shared a little bit last time uh, about my journey after being sexually abused and sent off from home. Um, but the reason I was sent off, uh, in part because of you know, what I was going through and not having the coping skills to get through it, a lot of it was um, we stopped going to church when all this stuff happened. Um, but the thing that, we, we st that replaced that is I remember being a kid taking 13 pills in the morning. And these were for antidepressant, uh, ADHD, anxiety, all sorts of things, right? And it screwed up my body and uh, my bio, uh, biochemistry in a, in a big way, right? And so that's the thing is we live in such a black and white world. It's either all this or all that. And this is so wrong because in, in regards to God, this is really dangerous because then we start to believe that we can understand God. 
if God is black and white and everything is black and white, we can understand that this is either, you know, this has to be sin and this has to be divine retribution, or you have to be, you're, you are right by God and you are flourishing in your relationship with God. And this is a problem I even think that we see today in, especially, I, I see it a lot and I've even experienced, of course, some of you know, being um, students with me while I was in school, this idea that this is what we see in the American church, especially amongst young people. In an era, again, where you have your phones so much, you have so many access to different things, we want, we want just a buffet of it, right? We want the best worship from here and we want the best preaching from here and we want this and that and the best of here and the best of there. And, that's, and it's because, it's because we think we understand God. We think we understand God enough that if I'm not getting what I need, out of this preacher or this message or this worship wasn't good enough, that vocalist, I didn't like him, right? If we, if we think that we don't get anything out of it or if we think that we understand it enough, then we just want the next thing, right? Um, the problem is with that thinking is that you don't ever graduate from the gospel. This isn't like school. You will never not need the gospel, right? You don't, and what this really means and what this, what I even need to be reminded of a lot of times is that I don't understand God. I can read a bunch of commentaries and, and you know, like listen to a bunch of sermons and read all these exegesis about what scripture I wanna go over for a small group or even for preaching or something like that, but I will never, never understand even the very core principles and the intricacies of who God is and what he has done for me. And to think otherwise is honestly very selfish, in my opinion. And I think that all of us are guilty of that selfishness. I know definitely I am when I, when I think about, you know, all the different podcast platforms are out there, or all the different bands are out there. We, we're just so picky and we want the best of everything instead of just who, what God and who God is offering to us in that moment. And so he continues in um, verse 7, he says, Stop and think, do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed. And what we know uh, now is that, well, Elphaz, you're kind of wrong. I can think of at least one person who is innocent and died. We'll get to it a little bit later. Um, but Eliphaz is assuming here Job's guilt, and he's going to continue to press into this. Um, remember that God does tell us that Job is blameless, right? He tells us that Job is right in his eyes. And so th these guys are now coming in and assuming differently. They're saying, you've sinned, you're wrong, right? And they even, at some point, they start to come up with these sins, these random sins that Job must have committed. I, I think about Job 22, he, he, it, um, Eliphaz is saying, is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless, right? But where is he getting that from, <laughs> right? If Job is blameless horizontally, when did he ever witness Job doing anything like that? He doesn't, he doesn't know that. Um, and so <clears throat> he goes down in verse eight and he says, my experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil uh, will harvest the same. And Eliphaz is operating uh, on the assumption that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And I can't help but think of one of my favorite shows growing up. I probably was too young to be watching the show, but it was a show called My Name is Earl. <laughs> Callens knows it. It's a good one. And so it's based off this guy named Earl and he, a bunch of bad things happen to him. He's an ex-con. <laughs> All of a sudden, um, 
he decides that he's going to stop doing all these things. And so he writes this list of every bad thing he's ever done ever. And he eventually, like after he decides to do that, um, I think I'm remembering this right, but he gets hit or he goes and gets a lottery ticket and he wins, I think it was $200,000. Well, immediately he gets hit and loses the lottery ticket. And so once he starts to go and cross things off his list, what happens is the lottery ticket somehow floats back to him and he finds it. And so he, he assumes that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And so his whole mission in the whole show is about how he crosses things off his list because he's wanting to, to get good things and be a better person. Right. And I think it, it just is such a running, running parallel so much to what he's saying here. He's saying, um, He's saying, um, those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. And what he's really reflecting, and this is what happens in that show too, is Job, or Eliphaz and Earl both believe in this idea of karma, not grace, right? Uh, and this idea of good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, you get what you deserve, right? But this is a misunderstanding of grace. And it's very clear that through this, and we kind of talked about it in, this, in our series when we talked about the five solas, is that um, unlike the Catholic Church and other uh, works-based works religions or faith bases, we believe in grace alone, not grace plus merit. Well, Eliphaz here is, is submitting that he believes in merit. And this is really dangerous because what this opens the door to and what this has opened the door, door to over, over the last, you know, last really hundreds of years, but the idea of the prosperity gospel, the, the prosperity gospel and the health and wealth, name it and claim it gospel. And this idea that if God doesn't, doesn't it, it's not within God's will for you to be sick. It's not within God's will for you to be poor, right? All you have to do is name it and claim it and say that I, God wants me to be rich. God wants me to be healthy. I'm not sick, right? And God will give that to you. And that's the prosperity gospel. And that's why this is so dangerous when we get away from the idea of grace, the true understanding of what grace is. It's a free gift, right? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. It's his, he can do that, right? And when we get away from that understanding, we open the door to all sorts of not, not just heresy, but dangers for ourselves and as it pertains to our relationship with God. And we see this even with Eliphaz in uh, verses 12 through 17, where it says, The truth was given to me in secret, as though whispered in my ear, it came to me in a disturbing vision at night. When people are in deep sleep, fear gripped me and my bones trembled. A spirit swept past my face and my hair stood on end. The spirit stopped and I could, couldn't see its shape. There was a form before my eyes. In the silence, I heard a voice say, can a mortal be innocent before God? Can anyone be pure before the creator? Well, what we know about this is that the, the, at, the end of the Job, at the end of the book of Job, in Job 42, verse seven, Job, or God rebukes the counsel of Job's friends. He says, Job, you've done right, right? And he says to his friends, he said, I'm angry with you and you better hope that Job prays for, for you, right? You better offer a sacrifice. And that's what he says. And so, um, the other thing that we already talked about is we, we don't have any evidence that Eliphaz and his friends prayed about, um, prayed about the counsel that they were going to give Job, 
but it's interesting here that we see that a spirit appears to Eliphaz, according to Eliphaz, to tell him these things about Job and what Job is going through. And so I'm not, I, I don't have enough confidence to say who or what that was, but I'll let, let that uh, be a question for you in your own heart. But I will say that the reason why I wanted to bring this up is this idea of we have to be very careful, especially with people who are going, going through grief, but in general, we have to be careful with invoking God's name or the spirit of God in any way at any time. I think that we, oftentimes we think of taking the Lord's name in vain of just saying OMG or something like that. But I think it's even more hurtful in certain times I've heard about, you know, reading up about stuff in the prosperity movement of, you know, people going to um, healing worship services and things like that. And people are being told it's within God's will to heal you. It's a very evil thing to say to someone without full assurance that that is within God's will, right? And so I, the reason I bring that up is because I want you guys to know that it's, it's very important that you take the Lord's name very seriously when you invoke that this is in the name of the Lord or this is within God's will. This is what I have, God has planned for you when you're talking to people, right? Because if you're not careful, you, it can get very, very dangerous. And so it's funny because Job, or Eliphaz then goes on even kind of talking in Job 5. He says, cry for help, but will anyone answer you? And this idea for cry for help is kind of referring to in the Greek translation, it talks about that's really the word that he's using for praying for Job. He's saying, stop praying, stop your blubbering. He's not listening to you. He's abandoned you, right? And so that's the counsel that Eliphaz has given Job to this point. And so Job opens with this prayer in, in Job 3. And Job 4 and, 4 and 5, Eliphaz is the first to, to um, rebuke Job and to respond back to Job. And then we're going to see in Job 6 and in Job 7 uh, and so on, Job responds. And this is kind of the theme of the book. They go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Um, but what we're going to see is Job responds and, and Job 6 is that Job pretty much ignores everything that Eliphaz said. <laughs> And so what we're going to see is that with that same predisposition um, that Job's friends are assuming about having to defend God and therefore, um, therefore Job is the enemy now and that God only brings suffering upon sinners and that because suffer Job is suffering, that means Job must be a sinner. Um, what we're going to see that Job ultimately comes to and has to reconcile. And this is why eventually God intervenes and, and says that you don't understand anything. And that's what he says. But Job is assuming the opposite, that if God only brings suffering to, um, to sinners, I'm righteous, right? And so what, what's really being told here is he believes in some capacity, and this is where he ultimately cracks, but at some point he slips and believes that God is unjust, right? And so um, <clears throat> we're gonna open up and we're gonna talk in Job 6, starting in verse one, uh, where he responds to Eliphaz and says, then Job spoke again, if my misery could be weighed and my troubles be put on scales, um, they, would, they would outweigh all the sands of the sea. That is why I spoke impulsively, for the Almighty has struck me down with arrows. Their poison infects my spirit. God's terror are lined up, terrors are lined up against me. Don't I have the right to complain? Don't wild donkeys spray when they, 
when they find no grass and oxen bellow when they have no food? Don't people complain about unsalted food? Does anyone want the tasteless white of a tasteless white of an egg? My appetite disappears when I look at it. I gag at the thought of eating it. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant my desire. I wish he would crush me. I wish he would reach out his hand and kill me. At least I can take comfort in this. Despite the pain, I have not denied the words of the Holy One. But I don't have the strength to endure. I, I have nothing to live for. Do I have the strength to, of a stone? Is my... Is my body made of bronze? No, I am utterly helpless without any chance of success. So that's where we're going to stop. And so <clears throat> there are a few ways that Job responds, um, not only to what Eliphaz is saying, but we're going to see here, um, and this is kind of partly why Job ignores the counsel and the comfort that Eliphaz is offering him, is that we're going to see here in Job chapter 6 what and how Job comforts himself. Right. And so the first thing he opens up, he said, if my misery could be weighed, my troubles would be put on scales. They would outweigh all the sands of the sea. And so while in this we're told that he's responding to Eliphaz, what we do know about what Job has already done is that he's continued to pray and he's praying. He's praying constantly and he's been talking to God. Right. Um, and so that's and that's really the main difference between Eliphaz and Job especially in this instance, is Eliphaz is speaking a lot about God, invoking the Lord's name and saying he's talking about God and this is how God works. This is how God is. This is God. Where Job is very honest and very real with himself about how he's feeling and he's saying this to God. He says a lot of harsh things, um, but what these harsh things are is their emotional realism. It's an admittance of his feelings. He's saying, <laughs> he's saying, um, if my misery could be weighed and my troubles be put on scales, they would outweigh all the sands of the sea. He's saying, this is how heavy this burden is that I'm holding. And he goes on and he says, I, uh, for, the, for the Almighty has struck me down with his arrows. Their poison infects my spirit. He's saying, I feel like God is killing me, man. I feel like God is against me. I feel like he's, he's throwing all these arrows, all this, these things at me, right? But what, what's happening here is, you know, he, these were similar things that he, he was saying in Job 3 where he was praying, right? But now what we see is he's, he's being vulnerable and he is being very open and admitting to his friends what he's feeling, right? And I think that's really important for us, even as I've shared a little bit about my story, this idea of vulnerability amongst, you know, fellow Christians and even with God. We are, we, it's vulnerability. It's, it's not like, I don't share part of my story. I don't share, you know, the hardships that I've gone through for my own glory. And I don't even do it because it's fun. It's not. I do it because it's required. We have to be vulnerable. We have to be willing to be, to tell not only our fellow, our fellow Christians, but we have to be willing to open our mouth and say with our words, God, this is how I'm feeling. And I've noticed even like as I was preparing for this, one of the things I did one day, uh, because I was just feeling all sorts of places because I knew that this was such a big chunk of scripture. I wasn't sure where I was going. And I opened my, my notebook and I said, Dom, how are you feeling? And I wrote down everything that I was feeling. And I think that's good for us to do. 
I feel like it's good for God, um, good for us in our relationship with God. Because yes, we assume and we know that God knows already how we feel. But it's important for us to be in prayer and not only be in prayer, but to be open and honest and vulnerable about how, how we feel in our emotional state. Because we're not just spiritual beings, right? We're, we're people. Uh, and we see this with how Jesus treats people in his ministry, how um, the angel of the Lord uh, treats Elijah, right? He cooks him a meal, right? He lets him sleep because he's human, right? Um, going back to the idea of oversimplifying everything's a spiritual answer, right? But he continues, Job does, in, in um, verse eight, it says, oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant my desire, I wish he would crush me. I wish he would reach out his hand and kill me. And so what you have to realize here is that while Job is going through immense pain, Job never considers the idea of suicide. I think there's a few reasons for this, um, but I'll, I'll just go back to this idea that he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. His life is in God's hand as well. Right, the Lord gave him that and the Lord takes it away. Right, it's not Job's to take and Job doesn't believe that he has the right to commit suicide. And so he's asking God to take his life for him because he doesn't believe that he can. So he's saying, God, would you please crush me? This pain that I'm feeling is unimaginable. I cannot, there, I don't know how I'm gonna bear it. But he does go on and he says, um, in Job 6, verse 10, he says, at least I can take comfort in this. And so he is saying, I do have this existential form of comfort that I'm feeling, right? I, I do have this one thing still that I can put my solace in. He's saying, despite the pain, I have not denied the words of the Holy One, but I don't have the strength to endure. And so there's a whole lot to unpack, unpack here. And this really even gets to the idea of why Job wants to die, right? Um, if you notice, Job never, not once, if you read through it even too, Job not once laments and um, really complains about the fact that God took his family, his wealth, his health from him. He's not, he's, that's not what he's afraid and so, I mean, he is broken about it, but that's not the hardest thing that he's broken up about right here. Job was afraid of losing the only thing that he feels he has left. Um, Job at this point, and we're gonna see this all the way through, he finds a way to, to fight for this, but Job in his heart believes and he thinks and believes that he has a clear conscience, that God looks down on him and says that he's right, he's blameless, I love him. Right? <clears throat> but the reason that Job is asking to be killed is because he's got a really big fear that this, this, this idea of knowing and feeling, experiencing God's love, being in that relationship, he's feeling like that's slipping away, right? That's why he says, but I don't have the strength to endure, right? But what we know is that Job is absolutely right in his assessment, his self-assessment. He doesn't have the strength to endure, right? And he, along with everyone else in the Bible, there's been, never been anyone 
who truly, perfectly, completely kept the words of the holy. No one can, right? And that's the point of scripture. That's why it makes, goes to such great lengths to tarnish every single person and character in the Bible, except for one, right? Because no one has kept the laws of the holy, but one, Jesus, right? And this is where we're going to see this ultimate comfort, right? Because Job has confidence that he's right. He has confidence um, that God loves him and that he loves God, but he can feel it slipping, right? And so in a way, he understands that this is fallible for him. But Jesus Christ and the love that he has for us and the love that he displayed for us on the cross is infallible. It's perfect. It's total. It's complete. It's done. The law after that is a mirror. He came to fulfill the law. The law was a mirror to show us that we weren't perfect. We couldn't keep the law. The law is do this and the cross is done. Right? And so the idea that the perfect comfort, the ultimate comfort, that Job's comfort is good, but it's still slipping. And so it's not the ultimate, the best comfort that he can have. The best comfort that, that we can have, that he can have, um, which this is before that, but is Jesus, right? Jesus was perfect. He fully, perfectly kept the law. And even in John 8, he says, who charges me with sin? With sin? He's like, can anyone point to anything that I've ever done wrong? The answer to that would be no, right? And so what does this mean for us in regards to how we view these three levels of comfort? Um, in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, for God made, uh, made Christ who never sinned to be offered for our sin so that we, uh, we could be made right with God through Christ. Why is this so significant, right? Why is this the verse that I pulled to tonight? And I pulled to this verse because what this verse gives us, what this verse is telling us in regards to the story of Job is that on the cross, Jesus proved Eliphaz wrong, right? Eliphaz said and came, came to Job it, trying to offer him comfort saying that who being innocent ever perished? Jesus Christ. Or, or when, when and where were the upright ever cut off? I can think of somebody, Jesus. Anyone who reaped trouble must have sowed it. That's not true because Jesus, <laughs> because of Jesus. And so what we can put our solace in, what we can put our hope in, what we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt with full assurance, unlike what Job has to deal with because he can feel this slipping, right? Jesus is the true Job. Jesus is the true Job. He's the only innocent sufferer. He's the only innocent sufferer who followed God and did, followed his law perfectly, followed him onto death. And he got nothing for following God other than, you know, death. He was killed because he followed Jesus. And so this verse in 2 Corinthians says that because Jesus Christ died for us, we, we can be made right with God, saved completely, totally, perfectly. And we are now white as snow. That should give us full assurance, full confidence. That should give us the ultimate comfort, right? Remember, comfort isn't a complete, um, a complete alleviation of that pain, right? But it does make it bearable. And so 
Job is afraid because he's not fully assured that God loves him. Job's entire life, Job knew that God looked down on him and said, that man is righteous, I love him. And now that, he's, that he's, being, he's going through suffering, all of that, all of that is being challenged. And that's what Job is going to have to defend, not only to his friends, um, but defend in his own mind, the battle in his mind, um, as he goes through this next 30-some-odd chapters, <clears throat> answering the questions, why am I suffering and how will I bear it? But for us, the takeaway is that we have full assurance. Job, Job's understanding of grace, Job's understanding of God was fallible, but because of the cross, because we have the completed scriptures, because we have all the resources that we have in Jesus, it's a full assurance. And it should never waver. So I'm gonna invite the band to come up here. Kind of missed my cue on that anyway. Um, but what we really need to pull away, and, and I'll keep coming back to this because to me it's the most important thing, is that Job does understand this idea of grace, right? Job understands it. It's very clear that his friends don't, right? God has extended us his grace. And this is beautiful because we don't deserve it. But the other thing that we're told about God's grace um, and what Job is going to realize over the course of this story is that God's grace is sufficient for us. And so that's my prayer for you guys. I'm going to pray for us and then uh, the band can lead us in the time of response. But God, um, we come to you tonight. We know that, Lord, there's so many things going on in our world right now. There's so much uncertainty and there are hundreds of thousands in pain. Um, God lamenting the things that they've, they've lost, whether it be their loved ones, their jobs. Um, there's chaos all around us. There's so much disunity all around us, around the election, uh, around the coronavirus, everything. And God, as followers of you, you've offered us the ultimate grace the ultimate gift you've offered us yourself. And so God, because of that, we have the ability, um, not that we don't have to be the Job's friend. God, we can be a light to those who are walking in darkness, God, that who are suffering unimaginably. God, that we have the ability, we can pray with them, we can share the truth and confidence with them with full assurance. God, that you are who you say you are, God. And your son, Jesus Christ, came and lived the perfect life, a life that we couldn't live. And he died on the cross for our sins. God, we're thankful for just this place that we can worship you. Um, whether we're here or online, wherever it is, God, we're just thankful for our fellow believers in Christ. Uh, God, that we can pursue you together. God, we thank you for your son and for his sacrifice on the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.